What's up, everyone? MTG Goldfish Podcast here. The crew is with you. And, um, yeah, Pro Tour happened, so we're going to be talking about that a lot. We have a lot to say about that. So, as always, Richard, what is up? Hello, everyone. And uh, Saffron Olive, or Seth as we call him around here. (laughs) What's up, Seth? Hey, everybody. And Chaz uh, with you. So, the docket, this is episode 30. Uh, It's a pretty... uh, it's a pretty good milestone. Uh, Thirty episodes. It's, it doesn't seem like a lot, but it, it kind of does at the same time. Um, so this episode, basically, we're just going to dedicate it to Pro Tour. Um, we want to talk a, a little bit about price movement, and um, we got a little bit of information for the Commander 2015 that uh, Richard and Seth want to touch on, and then um, we have some fish mail to address. So I just want to kick it off. Pro Tour, what was your guys' reaction? Richard? Uh, it was fun. I liked all of the aggro going on. I know a lot of people are, are down on Mono Red, but it was refreshing to see a match end in like two minutes. You know, like <laughs> five turns. What did you draw? Oh, sorry, you lose. So it was actually very fun watching uh, these quick matches. Or uh, It was hilarious when like they're sideboarding and they, they, they flip into another match, and then that match like finishes in five turns and they flip back. Like... I, I really like the fast pace, especially after, you know, some of these, like, green-white um, manifest decks or whatever that go on forever that we, we've been seeing on feature matches uh, in the past couple months. So, mono-red. I, I like mono-red. And, uh, you know, when new sets come out, mono-red is one of the front runners, And, uh, it, once again, it proves, you know, this, this theory is right. It's hard to build a control deck in an unknown field and just be proactive with your eight four-damage spells. Yeah, Richard, you nailed it. I mean, mono red spiking two pro tours back to back just kind of echo those sentiments. It is really hard to like come in there with a control deck, and red is just so strong uh, with a new set, especially because it got a lot of great new tools. <laughs> I-, I was reading some of the uh, uh, Twitch chat. Sorry, uh, Seth. Sometimes you know I actually do read it uh, <laughs> um, as vile as it is. It was funny because people were. Uh, we're saying, like, the match took shorter than the time it took for them to shuffle their decks. And I thought that was just extremely funny because it was really true. Seth, what did you think of the Pro Tour? I, I know uh, <laughs> you're not as in on red as me and Richard are. I, despite the presence of all those red decks, it was still a really entertaining tournament and weekend. Um, I was especially excited about some of the fringe decks. Uh, although it wasn't fringe, Everyone's excited about the eight four damage spells from Mono Red. Well, the Channel Fireball Artifact deck is basically playing eight five mana burn spells if you count in Soul Artifact as a burn spell when you throw it on an Ornithopter. Uh, so that deck was super exciting. Uh, of course, Andrew Cunio's Mill deck, which they just barely put on camera, was cool. Uh, so it was a good weekend, despite the fact that I didn't especially like the decks. I do have to say, though, the conclusion was a little disappointing. Like, talk about anticlimactic. Game 5, $40,000 on the line, and it's a mull to 3. Like, I, uh... I actually like that mull to 3. Like, that's what happens when you play these aggro decks, right? And, like, the commentary that LSV was giving was, like, spot on, right? Like, yeah, here's five crappy cards, but you know what? You know, Darksteel Citadel, Island, and Soul will win you the game, right? You have a legitimate shot, yeah. so you got to ball the three and go for it. And, you know, like, the match itself took the same amount of time as any other match, right? He could have kept a bad hand and died in, like, two minutes. But instead, we saw him uh, trying to get a good hand mulling for two minutes. 
and uh, he died anyway. But uh, I, I actually thought it was kind of fitting for these aggro decks. But that's how you play them. You kind of live and buy, uh, die by the sword. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you really do have to be very aggressive, uh, not just in playing the game, but in mull- uh, your mulligans too. I, I remember saying, hearing LSV, I think maybe, um, you know, in that final match, he got a little too greedy. Uh, he, he, I remember him saying that one of his hands was, was keepable, and then he kind of mulled it. I don't remember the exact wording. Yeah, that that Insole Artifact deck was um, really interesting. Um, I did not expect it to do so well, especially because it was almost like a, a draft deck <laughs> with uh, <laughs> like Whirler Rogue and God knows what else was in there. Thopter Engineer. Yeah, Thopter Engineer and shit like that. But it was it was really effective, and it really was just as uh, potent and um, had just as many good matchups as Red. Uh, just you know. It happens sometimes. It came down to it, and red is, I, I think, a little more, a little more streamlined and consistent than the blue, red, and soul. I, I thought it leaned really heavily on the Insoul artifact, you know, being the namesake of the deck. But I mean, when you get it, it's insane. When you don't, it sucks. So you did a uh, by the numbers as always, Seth. Um, just talk a, a little bit about that, just to get the number side of the uh, Pro Tour. Okay, well, I mean, so basically I went through all the decks from the Pro Tour and broke down, like, based on how many players started off on Friday playing the deck, how many of these players made it to day two, how many ended up with six wins or seven wins or eight wins. So we could kind of compare the decks against each other to see which performed best and which performed poorly. So, unsurprisingly, if you watch the tournament, you probably subjectively came away with the idea that the Blue-Red Artifact deck and Mono-Red were really good And the numbers basically back that up. Like, across the board, both of those decks were above the field average, far above the field average, at giving players good finishes, at putting people into day two. Like, at every data point, those decks were very good. One of the stranger stories is Matt Sperling made the top eight playing Abzan Control, and Abzan Control actually comes in below the field averages at almost every data point, which kind of makes his performance of making it to the top eight even more pers- uh, like um, even more impressive because he was playing a deck that wasn't necessarily good in this field and he still managed to make it all the way to the semifinals. It, it just so happened that one of those uh, the two red decks kind of knocked each other out of the in that first top eight uh, round. I mean, I think it was just if that kind of didn't happen, we would have almost saw uh, a red versus red finals. I mean, red was really potent. The blue red are and soul deck. Uh, like you said, and the numbers kind of back that up. The numbers also did back up that um, sometimes the top eight uh, metagame, quote-unquote, is not always indicative of like what actually got in there. Because um, like you pointed out, Seth, there was a lot of good decks that missed but had a really good standard uh, record. Yeah, that's part of the problem, I guess, if you want to call it that, with Pro Tours, is it's a split format. So it's very possible, like, the best example of this from this Pro Tour was Brian Kibler. He played right. his typical green-white little kids deck, and he went 9-1 and one in standard, but I think he had six losses overall because he just bombed both rounds of drafting. So that doesn't show up in the top eight or even in the top 64, but he had one of the best standard decks at the tournament. Yeah. I guess uh, Hearthstone Arena, you know, <laughs> doing that much Hearthstone <laughs> Arena, it's kind of... 
makes you rusty on some magic drafts. I, I, I only I, kid. I only kid. I know I we only joke, but I think that's actually like <laughs> part of it. Was, not not the I fact that joking. it's Hearthstone Arena, but the fact that he doesn't devote 100% of his time to playing magic. I, I tweeted. I tweeted that if the Pro Tour was Arena and Standard Constructed. Brian Kibler would have easily topped eight. Like, he, they just had the wrong split format. He needed exactly. arena. This, this is the next pro draft. tour. On Friday, you play Hearthstone. <laughs> On Saturday, you play Standard. You play Ma- yeah, you play Magic. <laughs> yeah, Richard, we've been, we've been covering a lot of pro tours over the course of the podcast. Now, um, you tend to look at that, too, that going forward, the metagame is kind of vested in those decks that don't make the top eight. Um, as just as importantly as the ones that do, right? Yeah, I think coming out of the Pro Tour, you know, people see, yeah, Mono Red won, but the second thing they look for are the cool brews, right? Like, you know, the uh, the Cuneo's uh, Mill deck, or, you know, we saw some uh, Green Black Company. Uh, there's a Jun deck up there. So there's a lot of cool things that kind of get the gears cranking. So, you know, even if a deck didn't make the top eight, people are still... Uh, on the lookout for these decks and you'll see them show up at your FNM and you know we'll, we'll see people experimenting and trying these decks and you know it, it also uh, helps the fact that not a lot of people not everyone loves red aggro so they don't just want to jam the, the number one deck from Pro Tour they're, they're going to look and dig deeper into the format and see what it has to offer yeah yeah, it was it was really great. Uh, I loved this pro tour. Obviously, coming from a, a person that loves aggressive uh, style strategies, especially uh, mono red. I just, I mean, I was really high on Abbott, and um, you know, kind of had to almost convince both of you that it's a good card. And here we see, like, no, not not to be like funny, but it's just really interesting to see this kind of new age uh, red deck where you have. Cards like Abbott, cards like um, Outpost Siege, and those cards kind of really keep the red deck in the game. Whereas before, you know, you didn't really have that. You didn't really have any kind of card advantage from uh, red, and you kind of had to rely on just burning them out or drawing, like, insanely good. Um, You know, Abbott and Outpost Siege really gives the deck a new dynamic. And The uh, the grossest part was, I think it was day one, it was like Christian Kakano playing... Uh, and he uh, fed the clans a couple of times, gaining 20 life. And he was still sweating bullets because he was going to die. <laughs> because uh, I think it was the Paul Rietzel he was playing. It His mono red opponent yeah. had uh, two two outpost siege going. And uh, actually had a legitimate shot of winning, even though the game went so long. So that that is the new age of mono red here, where they can actually grind you out with cards uh, if you if you lean too far and don't close the game quick enough. I don't know See, if I like it. Like, I, as someone that plays blue and plays control, I think, like, the way the decks are supposed to work and a metagame is supposed to work is if I'm playing control, I can expect to lose to a fast mono red deck on the early turns, but I should be rewarded if I can stabilize after turn six or turn seven, but being outdrawn by outpost sieges and abbots from mono red deck when you're playing salt eye control or something. That just doesn't feel right to me. Like, I don't think that's how magic is supposed to work. Uh, <laughs> to be fair, he sided into a big red deck, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's kind of like the, when the control deck, like, throws in a Bremaz or something and, like, puts it out in turn three and just kills you. <laughs> like, it's it's an alternate game plan. So it's not really, those aren't main deck cards, the, the sieges and 
you know, we've seen Thunderbreak Regent as well coming in from the board and the extra mountain. So they're kind of shifting their their plan. It but, might be more... I do agree with you. Like, eight, four damage spells seems a bit much. When you're sitting at 12 life, you know, with a stable board and sweating bullets because your opponent has three cards in hand, you're like, what? <laughs> Is this standard? <laughs> and, and it's even uncounterable with Exquisite Blood. Like, that's... I didn't think about just how much of a control killer that card actually is like there's nothing you can do at least with stoke you can uh disdainful uh stroke it or you can dissipate it but with exquisite blood you're just done if they peel out that off the top it doesn't I matter i thought a great revel sitting there you know just taunting you <laughs> it's, it's a bad time to be a control player the the interesting part is though this the red deck really reflects this new design philosophy from wizards like outpost siege chandra pyromancer with the zero ability abbott this is a new ability that they've just brought into red, like the, the temporary card draw ability that wasn't there even three years ago, maybe, was when we first saw it. And now we can yeah. really see this taking hold and creating a whole new red deck, like you said, Jess. Yeah, it's, it's really a different time for aggressive decks. I think they really wanted to kind of close that gap of... Um, I do understand in the sense that you you want to be rewarded from, you know, playing a control and, like, dominating the late game. And you still kind of do, I mean, honestly. I mean, it's not like Red is drawing, like, they are drawing cards, but it's not like they're drawing, like, Ugins off the top and just, like, jamming them down. Like, you still have the more powerful cards in the later, like, later on in the game. Um, they don't and matter, that, right? Four damage uncounterable. What are you going to do? <laughs> you're a four yeah, life I mean, dead, right? You need to yeah. fire off a Sphinx's Revelation. That's what you need to do. <laughs> yeah, maybe, you know, they, they, they kind of balance that out again. But I think they're really trying to draw, uh, like, lower that gap of, um, you know, after X turn, the aggro deck is just done. Because it it is a little unfair on both sides. Like, yeah, you, you kind of have the unfair uh, parts. But I think... It, it'll get to a point where it's stable enough that both decks kind of have that advantage at different parts of the game. Well, let, um, me, ask, let me ask you guys this then. How much different would things be if Wizards hadn't switched from 4-mana to 5-mana for Wrath effects? I don't think that that Wrath matters. Because you, you could have played Languish, and Languish basically does the same thing. I, I think the real problem is all the 4-damage spells. Like... The creatures are so efficient that you're going to get knocked down to 10 life or something before you stabilize, and they just fire off a couple burn spells and you're dead, right? Yeah. And, and now they have, like, Abbot of Carol Keep to dig. Like, I think the importance is not drawing a card, but it's drawing one of your eight four damage spells, right? So it, I think that's the problem. I think Control needs, like, a timely reinforcements card. Like, they, they need a life gain card that stabilizes. Or a five-mana Wrath that gains life. Maybe that would do it. And to be yeah, fair... something like that. Things will change this fall because Stoke the Flames will rotate. So we're in this weird summer meta where there are eight four damage spells, but it seems unlikely that Wizards would have an entire 18 months of standard with two of those cards existing side no, by side. Yeah, no, I, I, think it, I think you're right, Seth. We're just kind of in that weird time where the standard is kind of engorged with all of these sets and we kind of have that weird uh, time period where you do have like a Stoke the Flames and, and Exquisite Firecraft, but... I think it's more of a testament that Stoke the Flames is just a really, really good card. and um, <laughs> Really, really overpowered card. <laughs> yeah, it's really, really good. And uh, I think it, I think we might uh, go back to the time where, you know, it'll just have the exquisite firecraft and the kind of lightning strike and then maybe have, like, better creatures. 
But, I mean, Outpost Siege is going to be around for a while. Most of these red cards are going to be around for a while. So, um, I mean, it, it's very uh, rotation-proof. Well, they always not, give you think... more mono-red tools, right? Like, I don't, has there ever been a standard where there's, like, no viable mono-red deck? Um, they always the... give you the tools. Yeah, they do. I, I think um, back like the with the Cawblade and the Sphinx's Revelation type days, like, red just really couldn't. It, it didn't have, like, the, the cards it had now where... I mean, even with a Hellrider, if you didn't kill them, it was, like, over because they would just start chain Sphinx's revelations, and there was no way you could win. Yeah, even um, if you if you think back a year ago, the three big decks, one of them was playing Master of Waves, which is pretty much game over. One of them was playing Grey Merchant with a million black mana symbols, and the other yeah. one was playing Sphinx's revelation. Like, a standard like that, there still is a red deck, but it's just not going to be able to compete with uh, such a hostile meta. Yeah, and I mean, even think back, it wasn't even too long ago where Ivan Flock, uh, with that insane control, that, I mean, what, what's Red supposed to do about that? He's gaining, like, 30 life. I mean, it's it's impossible to, to stop. Um, especially when he's wrathing, like, quicken kind of crap, like, on your turn, and you just can't do anything. So there there are times where Red is kind of pushed out of the the meta, but, I mean, it was a very good uh, Pro Tour choice at this at this particular Pro Tour. I mean, it was just very good. Mountain winner of the Pro Tour? <laughs> yeah. Interestingly, no Goblin Pile Driver, so uh, no. our, our dreams for Goblins and Standard has probably died here because all of these pros tested, and the best red decks did not include Goblin Pile Driver. Oh, there was a different uh, two-mana drop, and its name was Abbot of Carol Keep. <laughs> and uh, I, I guess pseudo-drawing a card in red is better than pile-driving them. Before we kind of switch gears, um, what was the one co- – uh, so I'll, it's a double question for both of you, and I'll answer it myself. What was the one card you thought performed well uh, and why, and what was your favorite kind of pet deck at the tournament, uh, even if it didn't do that well or top eight? Uh, Seth? All right, well, let me start with the deck first because I know this one, and I've already <laughs> talked about it a bunch, but the Andrew Cunio deck is super awesome, like – that's the kind of deck I love. All you do is draw cards, and eventually, because you draw cards, you win the game. Like, what could be better than that as a control player? I don't have to worry about anything you're doing. All I do is draw as many cards as possible, and eventually you'll die. So that deck was super cool. I wish it had gotten more on camera. Uh, it, it got, like, three minutes as a backup feature match, and then I think he kept, like, a one-lander against Efro and just died to the artifact deck in, like, two turns, and it just... <laughs> It didn't look good on camera, but it did finish 6-4 and four and uh, perform pretty well. So I'm really excited about that one. As far as a specific card, uh, just based on my biases, I can't pick anything from the red aggro decks. <laughs> so I, I think I'm going to go with Hangerback Walker. Hangerback Walker was an integral piece of the artifact deck. It showed up in some really random aggro decks. And it also showed up in the few control decks that did actually compete were playing Hangerback Walker as a two-drop just because it's good value. So I expect to see a lot of that card moving forward. Yeah. Richard? Pet deck, uh, probably the green-black demonic pack deck, or maybe even yeah. the Saltai demonic pack deck. Like, it looked good. Like, not going to lie, I, I, I expected it to look a bit janky, but it's just like a rock deck, right? It's, it's a solid green-black deck. Uh, apparently, a demonic pack is cruel ultimatum over four turns, right? <laughs> and 
it was impressive, and their cards spiked like crazy over the weekend. Um, yeah, so that's unfortunate. Yeah, that's... <laughs> you, you know, because you always see these cool decks. Like, oh, I want to try this, but then you're like, oh, wow, it's now outrageously expensive. But uh, you know, having the packs, and then on Twitter, you, you, I saw like a bunch of pictures of people with like three packs in play with like various number of counters on them. It just seems like a really fun card, and it would have been really sweet uh, for it to make the finals, but uh, or into the top eight, but it didn't. But uh, we got some deck lists out of it, so hopefully we'll see some more coming up at the SCG. But Demonic Pack was definitely my favorite deck uh, yeah. of the weekend. Yeah. Or, um, oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was gonna say my favorite card, or the card that impressed me the most, was Exquisite Firecraft. So, Ooh. so entertaining. Like, it's just a three-mana deal four damage, and, like, in a vacuum, it's like, okay, whatever, right? But just coupled with the mono-red shell, like, it was just crazy. That that card did so much work for the skin. Yeah, it was, it was brutal. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I guess we're doubling up on mono-red today. Uh, sorry, Seth, you're just going to have to... You, you can't escape this one, man. Uh, you, you, you skated by too long. <laughs> um... My favorite card was Abbot of Carol Keep. Uh man, he just whenever it was played on screen, like it was just doing some ridiculous stuff for the deck. I mean, it especially in multiples, it was brutal cuz like one spell basically powers up your entire team with uh Abbot and it's just a great uh two-turn drop after a um a Swift Spear. It was it was brutal. And even if it flipped over something that they couldn't play, it still was digging them to to another card or something that's going to help them. Um, there was very few times that it flipped over and they weren't able to play the card. As far as my pet deck, I'm going to have to go with the the Hardened Scales deck by uh, Ken Yukihiro. I, I don't. I think one card that I was more surprised of than Warlord Rogue is Abzan Falconer. <laughs> I did not expect. To take uh, Abzan Falconer to a Pro Tour. I mean, damn. Hey, that and card like, looks okay, man. Honored High Arc is in this list. <laughs> Honored High Arc. Well, well, you know what's really funny is you look at this list. It's like a, it's like one of those um, like cons, like it's like an event deck almost. <laughs> it's like I swear to God, like w- like maybe they just threw in an Ajani in there for good measure, but like this could seriously be like an event deck, and. What's even more funny is, like, ninety-five percent of the cards are from Khan's block. So this this could actually stick around uh, after a rotation. Um, so I, I'm pretty interested. Uh, playing a turn one hardened scales and then a turn two hangerback walker is kind of good, uh, just on their own. Like, just for a straight up two two, and then its ability adds two each time. Uh, yeah, I, I I have to say. Um, it's a really interesting deck. Sucks that it didn't top eight because uh, Citadel Siege is is a card for sure. Um, but hopefully we see this deck in the future. Um, any kind of final thoughts for uh, for Pro Tour? I mean, Seth, uh, this must have been awful. I mean, we did some coverage. Red was just everywhere. It's just not something that you like to look at. Yeah, it, it wasn't my favorite pro tour, but I have to say it was still a pro tour, and I yeah. still watched all of it, and it was still entertaining. So even though it wasn't my favorite, it was still very good. You had to say a couple of the mono red mirrors were actually interesting to watch. They were they were kind of uh, clutch and like down to the wire. They were good matches. 
Yeah, I mean, you're sitting on the edge of the seat waiting to see who draws exquisite blood first. That's uh, thrilling magic. Tearing blood, tearing blood. <laughs> no, um, what's actually very interesting is who slapped the Eidolon down first. <laughs> like Watching these red decks battle it out was pretty crazy. Or watching a searing blood on a fire drinker satyr. That was delicious. Oh. Brutal. Like, no, someone didn't prepare for the mirror. I love how the guy. I love how one of the matches it came down to it. The, the one of the players was at four. I forget who specifically it was, and there was a fire drinker out, and instead of just burning it before he actually burned the fire drinker just for good measure, like just like yeah, you shouldn't be playing this card in this matchup. <laughs> <laughs> now just die from your own uh, fire drinker. Um, the one thing going your way, Seth, was that Jace. Did not make the top eight at Jason all. Didn't really have that impressive of a weekend. Like every pro that talked about Jace said good things about Jace, but he just didn't show up in the list really. Yeah, so good thing uh, for people that want to start picking up some Jaces uh, for the future. Yeah, well, and um, the problem was Jace wasn't actually every blue deck. Was there a blue deck that didn't run Jace aside from its sole artifact? Uh, like he was actually played in almost every single blue deck. No, he was. He was. I guess so it I was, guess there was yeah. the blue decks didn't end up performing that well, I think, was why Jace looked bad. Just blue sucks, but if you're going to play blue, put Jace in there. <laughs> yeah. Or if you're going to play blue, play in Soul Artifact while you still can. Sorry, just just <laughs> grab a pair of scissors and go to town. Yeah. That was... I love the arch. <laughs> I love the fact that it, we can call it scissors and it looks like a giant pair of scissors. And <laughs> Yeah. Um... All right, moving along, uh, Seth, let's do some, some price movement. There were some interesting spikes over the Pro Tour, uh, so why don't we start off with Standard? All right, well, in Standard, this list of winners is probably going to sound familiar because it's a lot of the cards we've just been talking about. Yep. Hangerback Walker, up 75%. Abbott, up 154%. Exquisite Firecraft, 118%. Then Demonic Pact, Nissa, and Soul Artifact, Liliana, See the Unwritten, Sopter Spy Network, and Jace down at number 10. On the loser side, Collected Company, uh, Kathion, Hero of Ekros, Days Undoing, Goblin Piledriver, Erebosis Titan, Archangel of Tides, Windswept Heath yet again, Evolutionary Leap, Dramokus Command, and Languish. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's kind of the regular cards that did well at the Pro Tour. Cards didn't do well at the Pro Tour. Um, Collected Company still just tanking uh, along with uh, Windswept Heath from that event deck. I mean, damn, Seth, that really killed it, huh? It did. I think they're very close to their floor, though. I kind of broke down some supplemental products in an article a week or so ago, and I don't think they can get much under $10, so I expect this refall to stop fairly shortly. Yeah, and then um, kind of rebound uh, through the, you know, in the coming future. Yeah, slowly, but I think they will. Uh, they're both modern playable, so I think they will gain their uh, prices back over the ne course of the next months and years. Yeah. It also had so, a pretty bad showing at the Pro Tour. Like It did. Only I think we only saw it in uh, Abs and Rally, which had a really tough time against Aggro decks, and uh, Kibler's green-white deck, which went 9-1, didn't even play Collected Company. Yeah, Kibler actually had a quote on that, and he said... The breakthrough for his green-white deck, which you have to realize plays all creatures that can get hit by Collected Company, the breakthrough was when he realized that Collected Company wasn't good in his deck. 
that's what made his deck good, was realizing that Collected Company was bad. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of crazy because it's almost like you don't even get to the Collected Company when you're getting beaten down by, like, hangerback walkers and flying thopters and, you know, all this crap, and they're just burning your face in, like... Uh, you just have to just slam creatures and not even worry about the collective company. I um, think that's the same thing with Rally. Like, yeah, sure, you can combo off on turn six, but if you're dead on turn four, comboing off on turn six doesn't do anything for you. No, it doesn't. And, like, your creatures are so much worse than theirs. It's, like, ridiculous. Like, okay, yeah, you played a... Um, all right, on turn two, you're going to play a uh, Seder Wayfinder. I'm going to play an Insult Artifact. Let's race. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Um that kind of, you know, mucks things up for, for both decks. I mean, red is just like, okay, you're going to play a uh, uh, Seder Wayfinder. All right, I'm going to just keep smacking you with the Zergo. I'm going to Searing Blood your Wayfinder. Now you basically have nothing. Oh, you played a uh, Nantuko Husk? Well, I'm playing, like, four damage to your dome. <laughs> so, um, yeah, just rough. What do you think of some of these cards going forward? We're in that weird time, Seth, where, I mean, we just talked about it, that Standard is kind of as big as it's ever going to be. Um, you know, where do you where do you see these going forward? I, I just it's going to be a different landscape come uh, come October. Yeah, it definitely will be. And one thing that's really consistent about these huge pro tour spikes of 100 percent, 150 percent is almost always the cards drop back down, probably not to their previous price. But even a card like Abbott and Exquisite Firecraft, it's going to be really hard for these to be $10 rares and standard since they only see playing one archetype, even if that archetype is really good. So I, I would expect to see most of these cards trend back down a little bit over the next month or two. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it just doesn't make sense to be um, to be buying these and... Uh... Like to buying these cards, and then you don't even know if they're good come October, you know? It, it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, exactly. Even though if there's one deck I'm fairly confident will be good in October, or at least playable, it's probably the red deck, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I thought you were uh, going to say Enchantress. <laughs> yeah, Seth, we did see a Starfield deck go uh, pretty well into the, into the, um, into the tournament. Not they to, actually, like, kind of muck it up. Uh, kind of talk about different things in different sections, but... There were uh, three. Three players on Starfield Enchantress, and two of them got at least seven wins in Standard. So the deck actually performed well in a very small sample size. Yeah. Um, Do you guys want to talk about the Magic Online price movement? Because there's some actual pretty interesting things going in there, because sure. it's a much more liquid market. Yeah, sure. Um, so we don't usually talk about online, but... Um, you know, Richard, yeah, you, you suggested that we start doing online, so we'll we'll touch on them when we can. Um the daily change, um is that is that more No, I'm I'm talking about uh so the reason why we're talking about Magic Online this week is because uh, Pro Tour. So things happen much right. quicker on Magic Online. But uh Temple of Epiphany up thirteen tickets, two hundred and thirty percent. So uh, before the Pro Tour, it was sitting at a cool five, six tickets. Now it's almost 20. Yeah. And uh, we have Eidolon of the Great Revel. Uh, that's sitting at 25 tickets online, and that used to be 13 before the Pro Tour. And uh, the weird thing about Eidolon is it's 25 tickets online and only $11 in paper. 
So we, we saw huge spikes and huge movement on Magic Online uh, in direct response to the Pro Tour. So that's something to keep an eye on in case uh, we see these effects trickle into paper. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's also really weird sometimes, like on the on the Moto side. Um, like I hear I heard of people trying to get into Demonic Pact online, and like by the time anything happened, they actually dropped because like it didn't get into the top eight and moto reacts like so fast that like not hitting the top eight is actually kind of a big deal and i heard like the boss didn't even like adjust their buy prices and the car just tanked by the time people like tried to buy in yeah i mean it's really the moto market's so interesting and the game on moto itself because it's so easy to switch decks you can see if you look at the big losers this week like Jace dropped down almost ten tickets. It's down nine or five tickets. It's down nineteen percent. Um, Goblin Rabblemaster, Temple of Enlightenment, Collected Company. You can almost see players who were playing Jace decks or thinking about playing Jace decks leading up to the Pro Tour just dump their Jaces and buy mono red cards because that's the best deck now. And if you want to win a daily event, you're going to try to play the best deck. So you can see this really fit, fast shift, and it makes prices rise and fall really quickly. Yeah. Uh, going into the modern side, just want to touch on this. Uh, again, this is paper. Um, so we got Horizon Canopy uh, on the, you know, on the gainers, the weekly change. Horizon Canopy, Beseju, copies of Life from the Loam, Arcbound Ravager, Engineered Explosives, uh, Glimmer Void, Blood Moon, another copy of Ravager, and Voice of Resurgence. Uh, on the losers, Snapcaster Mage, Tarmogoyf, Gorio's Vengeance, Wiltleaf Liege, Leyline of Sanctity, Sliver Legion, Kozilek, Iona, Bitter Blossom, and Emrakul. Um, that's, it's a few weeks in a row now that Snapcaster's kind of just steadily declining. Uh, I think it's because a lot of people were, were hoarding these, and it, this is like a weird card because, you know, once it starts dipping down into a, a, a price point again that people want to start grabbing them again, it just kind of goes right back up, so, kind of get that weird influx in the market where people on, on, are unloading uh, copies, undercutting each other, and then finally it gets to this pr- pr- uh, point where people are like, oh my god, like Snapcaster Mage is back down to 50 bucks. I got to start buying these again. And it just starts going right back up as new people start hoarding into them. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's also partly maybe the end of modern season and Snapcaster yeah. is one of the most heavily played cards, so now it's trending back down a little bit. Yeah, uh, but it's just one of those cards that are going to be a staple in modern going forward. It's kind of like the Tarmogoyf 2.0, where at this point, if it's not like reprinted in a actual set, um, it's barely going to lose its price. I mean, it's not akin to Dark Confidant, where you know Dark Confidant's not as played as it used to be, and now it has like three different printings. Snapcaster Mage is always kind of going to be in the conversation of modern they're going to be hand in hand people are always going to want to play blue people are always going to want to play snapcaster mage yeah there's dark confidant has a very real downside in a very aggressive metagame uh with the life loss but no matter what the meta is it's really hard to imagine snapcaster being bad like it's just yeah there's no downside to that card (laughs) No, no there's really not um so yeah, price movement. Uh, yeah, the modern season's kind of waning at this point. There was an interesting notable on the weekly change, uh, Stony Silence, uh, with the kind of renewed interest in 
uh, robots, uh, that's obviously a good card to combat that. Um, so yeah, uh, going forward, maybe Stony Silence is a nice kind of gainer, uh, over the course of the next few months before we get into modern season again. Yeah. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but they released a schedule for premiere play over the weekend. And isn't the next modern season in the winter? Did I read that correctly? I think so. I don't remember the exact wording, but didn't they also, um, you know, now that we're done talking really about price movement, this kind of is a residual effect. Um, they also kind of mentioned this triple GP weekend again next yeah. year. Yes, I think next uh, next March maybe there is a weekend with three modern GPs, and that led to people speculating that that means this is another Modern Masters weekend because we had that massively hyped three GP weekend this past summer uh, for Modern Masters two. Uh, so what do you think, Richard? Does this mean we are getting another Modern Masters coming in March? I think the Reddit detectives are digging deep. I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know that it means anything. Uh, they, they've kind of just grouped together all the Grand Prix and they made a statement saying how they, they're trying to keep uh, the GPs that happen at the same time, the same format. Uh, so this means, you know, we're going to have a triple uh, modern GP. We're going to have, you know, a double legacy GP or something. You know, it doesn't mean that's legacy masters. It doesn't mean we're having standard masters and we have a three GP standard weekend. So I, I don't know what it means, but I, I think they're reading too far into it. And, uh, yeah. Wizards, I don't think they're scheduled for Modern Masters next year, right? It's supposed to be every two years? It's supposed to be. I mean, this new kind of 2015 uh, edition of Modern Masters kind of left it open to be an annual thing. I don't think they ever announced the schedule, but most people I know are under the impression it'll be every two years. Yeah, because I think, didn't they, I thought they came out and said it's it's not going to be an annual release, but they never actually gave a schedule. But I don't think they actually gave an uh, actual schedule. But what we do know, uh, Richard, we have some uh, information on the new Commander decks that are actually going to be released uh, this year. Yeah, so. uh, Wizards updated the WPN site, so that's the site for stores and vendors to get all the information about uh, sets and stuff. And uh, they released some information about the new Commander deck. So we know uh, it's being released November 13th, so later this year. And it's five decks, and they'll all be enemy-colored, pre-constructed decks. So that's the first piece of information we know. And then the second piece is there's 55 new cards in the set. Um, so I'm super stoked for this. This means we're getting new Legacy cards. This is like, you know, the, the only uh, constructed uh, legal set uh, legal format that these cards are legal in are uh, will be legacy if they're not reprints. So uh, look for your new legacy cards here. We've had True Name Nemesis, we've had Containment Priest, things like that in the past. Um, the other thing we've seen are rumors that the Fetchlands, the enemy Fetchlands, might what? show up. Fetchlands. Since conveniently you can put one in each in each set. So uh, do you guys have any comments on those rumors? Seth, we get some <laughs> Fetchlands. Uh, guys, I have been talking about this for months now, the idea of reprint equity, which is the idea that it doesn't make sense. Uh, I'm not explaining this well. All right. Wizard sells. <laughs> I get so Conclusion. riled up. Conclusion. Doesn't make sense. I, I get so wild, uh, riled yeah, up. Go dig up, go dig up our, our, our previous podcast where <laughs> Seth talked about this. Um, I, I, go ahead. Explain again. Because okay. you're going to have to. Basically, 
Wizard sells the Commander decks for 35 bucks. They can take and put something like a Worm Coil Engine, some new Planeswalkers in there, and sell a whole bunch of these sets. A card like a Fetchland, that card is worth 50 bucks, 60 bucks, 40 bucks, depending on what one it is. It's a waste of their intellectual property to use a $60 Fetchland to sell a $35 Commander deck, because they can do that with less valuable cards. What they want to use a Fetchland for is to sell Battle for Zendikar, or even if it's not Battle for Zendikar, another big fall set where that's much more important to them, and they can make much more money off of than they can from a supplemental product. We have a winner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it plus it even makes much more sense. It's like Zendikar, it's like, like, why wouldn't they do it? Like, it just makes more sense to put the fetch lands in Zendikar, they were in the last Zendikar, than just randomly putting them in some commander deck. Okay, I mean, okay. It just... hold on, guys. Enemy man lands. Ooh. That's possible. Yeah. That would be, I think that would be in about in the right price range that we could see that. Yeah. Um, and Richard, don't get too excited, all right? We only get one <laughs> viable legacy card per commander and the rest suck i know Gurmag want, angler like... can't be put <laughs> we gotta look towards magic origins uh limited jank piles yeah unless you want some like nine mana like wave of vitriol or like whatever the hell that card was in this last commander i wouldn't get too excited um damn none, <laughs> none of the planeswalkers were even legacy viable this time yeah, no. I mean they're they're all too expensive, right? Like you, your your place locker has a cap of maybe three or four converted mana costs. And, yeah, uh, it's got to be better than Jace if it's four. So it's a it's well, high bar there. Asian Ebola sees some fringe play sometimes, but yeah, it's very very fringe. Oh, Tezzeret. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, Richard, uh, you get one like containment priest or. True name Nemesis, and like that's it. There's just big janky <laughs> EDH stuff. Hey, at least that... it shows that Wizards is thinking about Legacy. Like I'm pretty sure they design these cards with Legacy in mind. So at least yeah. they're like, we'll throw a right. bony Legacy players once a year. So here you go, guys. Yeah, here you go. Well, yeah, obviously they're thinking about it because I mean, True name Nemesis or Containment Priest obviously suck in like EDH. Actually, like you're not gonna play like a three one in EDH with four people. Oh, I get protection from you. Actually, I think right, that's pretty good, though. No? You just suit him up with a piece of equipment and he still kills everyone. <laughs> well, he only has protection from one player, so it's like Oh, you're right. Yeah, it's only yeah, one player. Yeah, so it's unless you're playing one on one EDH, uh which is, you know, the dual commander, which it is good in. Uh multiplayer EDH, it's not really that good. At all. You gotta you gotta bounce him. You gotta kill one person, bounce him, put him back into play, name another yeah, player, kill totally. him, go down the line. Yeah. That seems so worth it. <laughs> um Yeah, so uh kind of final thoughts on any any of that. Um yeah, Seth, uh price movement uh should kind of mellow out over the summer. Uh like we said, uh you know, it just doesn't make sense to be play, uh paying for these cards when they might not even be good come October. The landscape's going to drastically change. Yeah, definitely. And it's not going to take too long, though. Adrian Sullivan had a tweet, and I didn't even realize this till I read his tweet, but the next Pro Tour is only 10 weeks away from the last Pro Tour. And there's World Championships in between. So Wait, there's, still, there's still a lot of big happenings going on in the near future in the Magic world. Yeah. Uh, but like always, 
on the financial aspect, it kind of mellows out over the summer. It, the, yeah, things always do mellow out, but I still expect, like, with the world championships, there will be some price movement yeah. related to stuff like that. But this is one of the calmer times of the year. This doesn't seem to calm to me. We have From the Vault Angels, we have Dual Decks, Zendikar vs. Aljabi, both in August, and then in October, beginning of October, we get Battle for Zendikar. So if this is the calm period, man. Yeah, yeah spoilers. Oh. Spoilers. Wow, yeah. I told August. did we even... Yeah, did we even... Was that between the last two weeks? Yes, we haven't talked about the first battle oh, for Zendikar spoiler. God, wow, it's like evolving wilds. Well, the yeah, second, no, you guys the need uh, the new Aljazi. <laughs> yes, yes. So, just so it's out there, uh, they did spoil uh, a battle for Zendikar card. Uh, Richard, you posted it up on the site. Um, why don't you read it for us? Yep. Uh, Oblivion, Sour, Sower? Sower. My English. Uh, it's a sixth mana. Uh, it's colorless. It's a Eldrazi creature. It's a 5-8. And when you cast Oblivion, uh, Sour, target opponent exiles the top four cards of his or her library, and then you may put any number of land cards that player owns from exile onto the battlefield under your control. It's a mythic. And it's the face card in the new Eldrazi versus Zendikar dual deck. That it's a pretty damn good card for an Eldrazi, I have to say. Um, you wrote a little bit about it, Seth. Um, I mean, this obviously Eldrazi are confirmed. Um, what, what do you think? Uh, this this could be pretty good. Yeah, I think this card's very good. It's also interesting because we haven't really seen an Eldrazi like this. We saw Eldrazi spawn, and then we saw, what, the cheapest one was an 8-drop or a 7-drop, and they all had Annihilator. So we haven't seen, like, this mid-range Eldrazi creature, but Oblivion Sower itself, I think it's awesome. Like, the key word here is you can cast any lands from Exile, and we're in a standard that's dominated with Delve cards that are exiling things, um, so Murderous Cut, Dig Through Time, Treasure Cruise, it's very realistic that if you get to six mana, you can cast this and get three or four lands out of the deal between the ones from the top of the library and the ones that have already been exiled, and you're getting this huge 5-8 body for, in essence, like two or three mana, which seems pretty strong. Yeah, agreed. Um, I don't know how the rest of the Eldrazi are going to end up, um, but, you know, this is certainly a good, uh, lends into uh, Battle for Zendikar, for sure. Definitely. I think it's the best dual deck mythic uh, that we've ever seen. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. What would the second best be? I can't think of any dual deck mythics. Oh, I can't think of his name. It was from Innistrad. It was the little creature they played in the humans deck. It was white. Um, Micaeus the Lunark. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Micaeus the Lunark. I think that was probably the only other one that saw play. Then we had like Zergo, which is pretty much horrible. Um, <laughs> Helm Striker. Not, Helm Striker. Uh, uh, we not did the have, Ringer uh, of Bells that took down the Pro Tour. Yeah, we, we did have Pelucranos. That was all right. Oh, Pelucranos. That's, you're right. That might actually be better than Oblivion Sower as far as uh, constructed playability. Yeah, I'm interested in seeing people combo off with this thing. This seems broken. Like, I don't think we've seen a card that lets you just spew lands into the battlefield. Because it's not, you may play one of these lands, it's just put them right in. So if your opponent has exiled 10 lands, you're getting 10 lands. 
So and they're untapped. Yeah, so they're you untapped. Can immediately spend yeah. that mana. So I'm waiting for someone to break this. I'm sad that Dark Ritual is not in the format because that would be <laughs> gross. You just like Dark Ritual this thing in and take all the lands. Yikes. Yeah, it's it's certainly a very powerful Eldrazi. I'm I'm eager to see what they do for Eldrazi this time around. Um, even if they don't have Annihilator, uh, I'm assuming cards like Animus Awakening or See the Unwritten or just kind of ramp style cards are going to be uh, a premium type uh, spell going forward to get into these uh, massive Eldrazi. Yeah, I agree. I think it'll be very good for that because we got to get some expensive 10, 12 drop Eldrazi. And this is a way to go from six, or maybe all the way up to 10 mana if you get lucky. Yeah. So I never um, played Standard during Rise, but did people actually play Emrakul or like Kozilek? There was there, there was standard? a mono there was a mono green Eldrazi deck. Yes. Hmm. <laughs> also, Summoning Trap was legal from oh, uh, yes, the card yep. block, so that was another way that they got into play. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there was definitely yeah. See the Unwritten, which is the Summoning Trap for this fall, assuming we get something like Emrakul. Yep. Interesting times. Um. All right, so let's wrap it up with our fish mail of the week, and that'll you know wrap up uh, episode thirty. So, what is our fish mail? Uh, this comes from Corey Lane via email. This was sent before the pro tour, so uh, the question, the answer would have been different. But uh, the question is, why is Hangerback Walker eleven dollars, while Hooded Hydra and Chasm Skulker are bulk? <laughs> I don't. I don't. I think I'm would have had the same answer regardless of Pro Tour or not. Uh, Hangerback Walker, I think, is leagues better than the two other cards. Not to say the other two cards can't be good, but, I mean, when you look at it, Hangerback Walker can be slotted into a lot of different deck lists. The Pro Tour definitely confirmed that, but even before then, uh, we we talked about this on cast, that it was kind of being slotted into these aggressive decks and mid-range decks, it just has so many different applications that, um, and it's not as narrow as like a Chasm, uh, Chasm Skulker or uh, a Hooded Hydra where you need all these kind of weird interactions to make them good. Hangerback Walker is just good, uh, is good on its own. And the other big deal is it's colorless. I mean, Chasm yeah. Skulker, you can only play in a blue deck. Hooded Hydra, only in a green deck. Already we've seen the blue-red deck playing Hangerback Walker. We've seen blue-black control playing Hangerback Walker, red-white aggro playing Hangerback Walker. You can just stick that card in anything, and it's a very good two-drop. Yeah, and just to add to that, you know, like, when you see an extra mana in the cost, it actually turns out to be a big deal. Like, you think, oh, it's one extra mana. It it doesn't matter, right? Uh, Hangerback Walker can come down on turn two. And, you know, if you think about cards like Lightning Strike, Lightning Strike is two mana, deal three damage. You know, it's a decent card. Right? Compared to Lightning Bolt, which is just, you know, one red, three damage, just one mana difference, but that's like the greatest red card of all time. So, you know, these very subtle changes in mana cost and color uh, actually end up having a very large impact on how, you know, how playable a card is. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't see any other reason to explain it further than that. I mean, I think that really kind of nails that question. Well, and so we saw it all over the place during the Pro Tour, right? Well, so yeah. That, that confirms uh, everything that def- said. <laughs> Yeah, that definitely uh, confirms it. Yeah, but thank you for the question. That was a good one. Um, is that it? That's it. All right, that's it for Fishmail. 
All right, guys. Um, pretty good milestone, episode 30. You know, uh, definitely continuing to chug along here. We will be back next week. Yeah, so great cast, guys. Uh, we nailed everything, and um, we'll have much more to talk about next week. So uh, this is the MTG Goldfish podcast signing out. <laughs>